The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Back in the spring of 2021, Terrence Rice's case was stagnating before the Brooklyn Conviction Review Unit, and he reached out to us at Wrongful Conviction to see if he could create some pressure from the outside. The interview was ready for release in October 2021 when his legal team requested that we temporarily shelve the episode as they were at a critical juncture in negotiations with Brooklyn DA Eric Gonzalez. After nearly a year, the interview has finally been cleared for release. Shortly after midnight on October 9, 1990, Terrence Rice finished a payphone call outdoors at the Tilden Housing Projects in Brownsville, Brooklyn. While using the walkway on the rear side of a neighboring building to return home, a gun battle was taking place inside and in front of that building, involving the occupants of apartment 1F. Police were already in the area and began arresting those fleeing the shooting through the back door. Terrence was swept up in the chaos with three other men. While two of the three have always maintained that Terrence was not in apartment 1F, the third man, Tyrone Flowers, allegedly was beaten into giving a false statement, supporting an uncorroborated police narrative. This narrative alleged that, separate from a well-documented gun battle inside and in front of the building, that Terrence allegedly fired four or five shots at police officers out of the back window of apartment 1F, to which officers claimed to have returned fire and that Terrence allegedly climbed out of that window, totally unscathed, before his arrest on the walkway. Tyrone Flowers denied the validity of his alleged statement at trial, but that same statement was used to rebut his denials, even though there were no spent shell casings, bullets, broken glass, or any marks on the building to corroborate this version of events. The three officers' testimonies went unchallenged at trial, and Terrence was sentenced to three consecutive life terms for a crime that never even happened. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your host, Jason Flom, and today we have a man that I'm going to introduce to you from behind bars, where he remains after 31 years for a crime 
that never even happened, with evidence that never existed, and with so many lies and misconduct and incompetence thrown into this toxic mix that you're literally going to go, Flom, you're crazy. This can't be true. But it is true. So without further ado, Terrence Rice, I've been wanting to share your story for a long, long time now. And I'm, I mean, sorry is not a strong enough word, but I'm sorry you're here under these circumstances. But I'm really happy that you're here to share this unbelievable tale. Yes, thanks for having me. I highly appreciate you, not just for my case, but for all the cases that you publicize because you're literally giving a voice to the voiceless. And I just want you to know that my words is insufficient to show and express my appreciation. Well, listen, I, I don't even feel like I have an option here. I mean, I have to tell these stories. So first of all, let's go back to before all of this happened. Tell us about what life was like for you growing up in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Okay, growing up in the Tilden houses in Brownsville, Brooklyn, it's just like most inner city neighborhoods where it's relatively poor and people just living their life trying to do the best things that they could do. Like far too many other residents of the neighborhood, I've had trouble with the law. You know, minor stuff, juvenile, things like that. The thing is, when you're young and you run in the street and you're getting yourself into things that you don't realize the impact that it's going to have later, you make bad decisions. So leading up, until my arrest for this case, I just lived a normal life. I lived with a female who was helping me get on my feet. I had a parole officer help me get a job with a program that they call Wildcat. I took all the civil service exam. And one of the places that called me back was the New York City Department of Sanitation. I actually went, passed the test, Schedule for physical and everything. The only reason why I'm not retiring as a New York City sanitation worker now is because I was wrongfully arrested, falsely convicted, and I've been here ever since. And I'm just going to go back now to give our audience a little context. So this was 1990 in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Both crime and police misconduct were out of control. It's also important to note that at this time, cell phones were really rare. So there was no unlimited talk and text or anything like that. Landline phone bills, by the way, could get really expensive. So it's not a stretch to think that a guy living in public housing would be using a pay phone booth on the regular. And if you remember, these phone booths used to be ubiquitous, right? They were all over the city. Now, back to the day in question. It's October 9th, 1990, just after midnight, 12, 10 a.m. Police were in the area already when they responded to gunshots at 330 Dumont Avenue that were happening between a group in the hallway outside of apartment 1F and the guys within that apartment who later became Terrence's co-defendants. Of course, I'm talking about Tyrone Flowers and Daryl Smith, as well as Randy Hampton, who ended up never being indicted. Now, Terrence, you lived in the adjacent building, 340 Dumont, which was about 200 feet away. Right. And there was a little courtyard in between the buildings. So take us back before this gun battle happened, when you were making your usual phone call that you made to your girlfriend. OK, so my significant other, she worked a job on Broadway video and the shift that she worked was from four to twelve. So my lifestyle was if we were actually together or I wasn't going to pick her up from work, we would routinely call on the phone. We had phone booths located in the back of my building. So I completed the call and on my way back to my building, it was shots fired inside of 330 Dumont Avenue. 
And I live 340 Dumont Avenue. So as I'm approaching the rear of my building, the officers had to already be in the area because they responded to that. Then some guys ran out of 330 Dumont Avenue, across Dumont Avenue. In that melee, one of the officers see me and pointed his gun at me and told me to freeze, get down on my knees, and basically walk towards him on my knees. So that's what I did. So I feel like I'm missing a connection here. So it just was that you just happened to be on the street, and they were just like, let's just grab this guy? I think that anybody that would have been out there that night, they would have at least made sure, okay, this is not somebody that got anything to do with that shooting that's going on. So that's how that happened. So it's just literally just wrong place, wrong time. That's really all it is. Exactly. Exactly. I got handcuffed. They grabbed somebody else that they said came out of the rear of the building and two other guys was found inside of the apartment in 330 Dumont Avenue, apartment 1F. So those guys claimed that they was watching a football game and shots came through the door. Some guys from inside the apartment fired out. The police arrived, and when the police told them to come in so they could secure the area, they came out. So it was a total of four of us that was arrested. Right. So Tyrone Flowers and Daryl Smith were arrested from inside apartment 1F, and then Randy Hampton was arrested outside and later ended up never being indicted, though. Tyrone and Daryl, however, were indicted along with you. And the story of this shooting inside of 330 Dumont was that the guys inside of apartment 1F had been in a dispute with another group about a girl earlier that same day. And in response, the other party to that dispute came and shot through the door of apartment 1F from the hallway. And the guys inside 1F then returned fire. As the other group retreated from the doorway of apartment 1F, the shooting moved from there to the front area of the building. The other party to this shooting was never found, arrested, or anything. But that gun battle inside and in front of 330 Dumont was well documented. I'm talking about spent shells and bullets, bullet marks and bullet holes on the walls and doors, and later ballistic evidence as well. So they've got these other guys who were involved to some degree, to whatever degree, with the shooting inside and in front of 330 Dumont. And you who was just on the walkway in the back of the building without a weapon, all four of you were brought down to the precinct. I mean, did you think you had anything to really worry about at that time? At that time, I'm still thinking, all right, once y'all realize I'm on a walkway alongside my building, I'm out of there. Unfortunately, the officers decided to fabricate a story. They said that I was shooting out of the window towards Dumont Avenue when they approached the rear of the building. When they announced themselves, I allegedly turned around and shot four or five times in their direction. They're saying that they shot back at this window, and I came out of the window, and they just arrested me. But unlike the other gun battle through the front door of apartment 1F, there are no shell casings or bullets, no bullet marks or bullet holes, no broken glass from the alleged return fire from police officers, nothing, in other words, to corroborate this version of events. But this is three police officers telling the story. They charged me, actually, with attempted to murder three police officers in possession of weapons, weapons that they found inside of a closet inside the apartment 1F of 330 Dumont Avenue. I hired an attorney immediately after being arrested. He hired an investigator named Robert Ledee. Robert Ledee went to basically canvas the area. He came back with approximately five witnesses at the time, and they all said, I've had nothing to do with this crime. 
And then he wound up interviewing my co-defendants, one of the guys that they snatched up, and the other two that was found inside the apartment. And these guys gave statements saying, listen, we've seen this guy around the neighborhood. You know, he was nowhere in this apartment. But nevertheless, three officers identified you as a shooter. And then Tyrone Flowers alleged that he was beaten into giving a video statement supporting their version of events that you fired either a revolver or a shotgun. And that's a, even somebody who knows very little about guns like myself knows that's a big discrepancy there that you supposedly fired out of the window of apartment 1F on the backside of the building four or five times at the police and then climbed out of that same window where you were arrested when you got to the ground level unharmed, right? But again, no bullets or shells, no broken glass, no bullet holes or bullet marks. I mean, you can't have a shootout and then magically everything just disappears, right? The, the physical evidence here doesn't support their version of events for the simple reason that it was all just made up. And no, it was standard protocol back then to test people's hands for gunshot residue, right? Did, did they test your hands? Nope, they didn't do that. They didn't do that at all. They didn't test that window for anything. They didn't test it for no fingerprints, nothing. No, and yeah, why would they when they knew that the results would have just disproved the story that they were trying to tell, right? You don't have to be Columbo to figure this out. And I think it's important to note that if you had done what they claimed that you did, if you were actually crazy enough to shoot at the police, you and that building would have been basically Swiss cheese by the end of that interaction. But instead, not a scratch. Exactly. Everybody knows that. Everybody listening knows that. And I pointed a gun in the middle of the night at the height of the crack era in New York City, when all of that violence was at its height, I would have went straight to the morgue. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. So when we was in the precinct and they separated all of us, one of the co-defendants was a 17-year-old kid named Tyrone Flowers. He said they beat him into making a confession, essentially saying that everybody was in the apartment, somebody shot through the apartment. The officers asked him, was I in the apartment? And he was like, yes. They asked him, was anybody shooting out of the window with a shotgun? Was anybody shooting out of the window with a... He was like, yes. So when he made this confession, he told us he did that. And he said, listen, I'm willing to give a statement saying that they beat me up in the precinct. They made me make the statement. So other two guys, they said I was not in the apartment. Prior to trial, immediately after receiving the statements, my lawyer filed what you call the severance motion. And this motion is designed to have me separate trial from the co-defendant so that we will be able to enjoy exculpatory testimony saying that I'm innocent. Right, because both Randy Hampton and Daryl Smith never wavered that you weren't even in the apartment, let alone had anyone fired anything out the window at the police. So 
add those two testimonies to Tyrone's claim of being beaten into giving that video statement, and that should have done the job. But that's, of course, not how things panned out. During the proceedings prior to trial, I had a hearing where my lawyer was not present. My lawyer filed the affidavit with court saying that he was on trial in Manhattan and didn't know when the trial would be concluded. Irrespective of that position, and I was not represented, the judge denied a motion that he had before the court for me to have a separate trial from these guys so that at the trial they could come and testify on my behalf, even if they didn't want to testify on their own behalf at their own trial. So now I go to trial. We went through a long colloquy in court about why you're not giving me the separate trial. And the judge said to my lawyer, you was here during a court date that I examined him. And he said nothing about testifying. And my lawyer was like, your honor, that never happened. I was never present. I was on trial in Manhattan, New York County. So they went back and forth and the clerk ultimately identified to the judge, listen, he was not here. So my lawyer said, this is the first time I'm in court with all parties present. I'm telling you, I have exonerating statements from them. I intend to call them. And the judge still denied the motion and refused to allow them to testify. So they granted the severance with the guy that made the videotape statement. My position is that you granted that because you were able to impeach him because he made a prior statement saying something contrary to that. The other, they denied the severance. They put Tyrone Flowers on the stand and Tyrone Flowers was basically up there hours whether or not what he said on the video was true or what he was saying today, meaning the time I was on trial. He had a whole bunch of contradictions because, like I said, on the stand, he's saying they was beating him up in the precinct, and he was basically saying what the officers wanted him to say. In the video statement, the officers asked him, was I in the apartment? And he was like, yes. They asked him, was anybody shooting out of the window? He was like, yes. My position with that was the same thing as with the officers. If what he's saying is true, where's the evidence of that? At? Right. It always comes back to the fact that this version of events is just words, right? Even though these words were repeated by three police officers, as well as allegedly, and this I say allegedly, but it's very credible, especially in that era, that they were beaten out of Tyrone Flowers, this narrative runs counter to all the physical evidence. While your version of events is supported by the physical evidence, as well as by Randy Hampton and Daryl Smith. Unfortunately for you, however, Daryl, as your co-defendant, was not allowed to testify. And Randy was never called by your lawyer. But what about all the other alibi witnesses that your investigator actually interviewed? One witness identified me by the phone, or Ms. Brunson. Another witness lived in 330 Dumont Avenue and was like, I see who was in that, but he was not there. He was not involved in that. So these witnesses my lawyer never put on the stand. This is just straight crazy. I mean, these other witnesses were not presented. Your severance motion denial kept the jury from hearing from Daryl Smith about your innocence. And then, with Tyrone's video statement impeaching what he was coming forward with on the stand, this was not looking good for you. Between the prosecution's tactics and the failures of your attorney, it was basically a systematic removal of any evidence in your defense. So the people put their case on, and it was essentially the testimony of the three officers. Once they got the testimony from them, they went through the technical stuff and marshaled in 
a whole bunch of evidence to establish that it was a shootout between whoever was in that apartment and whoever shot through that apartment door. They had pictures of the bullet hole through the door. They had bullet markers all in the hallway. They had spit shells. Some of them matched weapons that they found inside the apartment in the closet, and some of them didn't. I guess those were guys that shot in and they were never arrested. Every single thing that they testified about with respect to these two groups of people shooting at each other, they had all of the physical evidence for that. But it was not one single shred of evidence demonstrating that anything happened between anybody at any window and a police officer. Now, one of the officers actually testified that he seen a shotgun and the shotgun was being fired. And this happened before the revolver. Two of them said they didn't see a shotgun. Not one single shotgun spent shell was recovered when they recovered all of this other stuff. So evidence with respect to why I'm convicted is non-existent outside of the testimony of these three officers. You know, and it's striking to me that they didn't even bother to coordinate their stories. If I had to guess, they must have thought, well, we're going to convict this guy regardless, so why are we even going to waste time trying to sit around and make sure our stories match? They didn't even bother to do that. So you have conflicting testimony, all of which is nonsensical because it didn't match any of the facts. You have a total lack of evidence. It sounds like, I mean, it's a show trial. When the jury went out, did you still feel like you had a hope in hell of being acquitted? It's not like I had a jury that was made up of people that understand it's a difference in the way policing is being conducted. A lot of stuff that people is outraged about now is stuff that was unfortunately normal for me and guys that grew up with me. See, back then they didn't have cameras. But for us, it was like it's nothing for the police to pull up, guns drawn, get down, get on the car, don't move. That was regular stuff for us. So everybody don't have that view. So when a person hears somebody in authority that took an oath to uphold the law, why would these guys break that? Why would they get together and say that? Why would you make that up? So these juries, they don't know that part of it. But to answer your question directly, yes, I really thought that I had a shot because who is going to believe that they're going to be convicted for something? Not that you got the wrong person or any. It never even happened. It never happened. It's just an unbelievable indictment of our system in general. I mean, the fact that you're there now, Jesus Christ, right. you've been in prison eight years longer than you were alive outside of prison. So this is insanity Absolutely. for a crime that never happened. I'm going to say it again and again and again. A crime that never happened in which no one was hurt and no one was touched and no one was harmed in any conceivable way. Not even their feelings were hurt. So, okay. Right. So the moment that you were convicted, if you could take us back to that must have been the worst moment of your life. On October 16th, 1991, I go before the sentencing judge, and the sentencing judge basically said that I am going to run 25 years to life sentences consecutively, which totaled 75 years to life, because I do not want any one of these officers to feel like I'm punishing you all at the same time. She's sentencing me like I was a serial killer. So when I got sentenced to that, they immediately shackled me up, brought me on the bus, and I was shipped to Attica. At the time, I was convicted. If somebody would have decapitated three officers 
in Times Square, they would not have been able to receive another day more than what I'm sent to. Buried alive in New York State prison cells since October 9th, 1990. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. You fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I'm in Greenhaven Correction Facility. That's in Stormville, New York. You know, approximately an hour outside of the city, outside of the Bronx. And I exercise, I run marathons. I run and I also do mental exercises, meditating. So I do that. I take that time out for myself to get spiritually aligned so that I will be able to prepare myself for the visions of the day and all of the stuff that I got to go through. You can only imagine just the negativity and the environment coming from both sides of the fence. But I have a very, very strong support system, yourself included. Derek Hamilton, unbelievable. This guy spent a bunch of time in prison before being exonerated since the day he stepped out. 
this is the type of work he's been doing. So I'm encouraged by that. I have a wife whom I've been married to for more than a quarter of a century. People don't understand how we do that because they can't stay together that long out there. But she's definitely a rock and the kids. And so it's a combination of these things. Of course, you have moments that are harder than other moments. I love music. I love to read. I'm always reading. And aside from fighting my case, I helped a lot of other guys. I made sure I got a legal research certificate so I could work in law libraries. I did the IOC, which is basically an inmate liaison committee where I represent population to the administration, bring the concerns administration back to the population. I do youth empowerment classes, been involved in a bunch of different organizations. And everything that I felt was significant, just trying to be the best person I could be. Well, Terrence, all I can say is you have all my respect. And so now, with your post-conviction litigation, so much of this starts with the ineffective representation by your trial attorney, right? Ineffective assistance of counsel, of course, I raised that on appeal. They didn't even acknowledge that. I had also the severance issue and how it was not constitutionally sound for them to deny the severance motion for my co-defendants. I have been in Brooklyn District Attorney's Conviction Review Unit for over six years now, and they're supposed to be investigating this wrongful conviction. The district attorney, one of the investigators, did interview the girl. And she verified where she worked and that I would call every day, and this was our lifestyle, but basically dismissed that as if that has nothing to do because you're not an eyewitness of the crime. I had an extensive meeting with one of the sisters of the district attorneys. I explained to her, I said, listen, look how ridiculous this story is. If the officers, all three of them, they all talking about I'm not trying to scare them, I'm trying to murder them. At what time when I came out of this window actually towards y'all, did y'all decide I was no longer a threat? And I know nobody shot at nothing. After the meeting, when I called, my attorney said, the district attorney said that your story has problems because you told them during the meeting that the officers see you on the walkway, made you get down on your knees and walk towards them. And we had pictures. And if there's nothing wrong with the bottom of Terrence's pants from the knees down to his foot. And if what he said was true, that it would have been some dirt or something on his knees. So I couldn't believe they said that. So what I did was I called my wife and asked her, did she have a copy of my trial transcript readily available? She said, absolutely. I said, go to Officer Mackey's testimony. He said that when he noticed me, he made me get down on my knees, put my hands behind my back and walk towards him. I said, make a copy of that. Send that to the district attorney's office. They sent it to the district attorney's office. We didn't hear nothing back on that. So the next communication, my attorney said, Terrence, the district attorney is saying that during the meeting, you told them that you didn't know Ms. Brunson at the time you got arrested. You found out about her when she became a witness. But the record shows that this is who you called from the precinct. I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, no, this is what they're telling me. So I pulled out the police report from the phone call that I made. The phone call that I made was to the house I was living at, 340 Dumont Avenue, and to the females who I call every night. Send that to them. When they sent that to the district attorney's office, they said, oh, we made a mistake. Somebody wrote something in, and we thought that they wrote Brunson, but it really was somebody named Carr. So I was like, all right. And it's just been a back and forth since then. And back and forth it went like that, squabbling over these trivial details while they ignored what was glaringly obvious, that this was a quote-unquote crime that never even happened. 
That building would have been lit up like a freaking Christmas tree if Terrence had shot even once at those police officers, but that's simply not what happened. So while the squabbling continued, it appeared that some headway had been made in negotiations. So Terrence's legal team requested that we shelve this interview until they had a chance to hammer out the terms of this release with the Brooklyn District Attorney, Eric Gonzalez. And I'm happy to report that Terrence now joins us, finally, from outside the walls. So Terrence, welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys having me. So Terrence, the moment that I finally heard that you were out, I mean, I was so happy calling friends and family, uh, my, calling my colleagues here at Wrongful Conviction. You know, Connor, our producer, I think he, this case has, for, for some reason or other, this case has bothered him as much as any. And I know he's been so invested in this. And so it's, uh, you know, it was a great call with him. And we're all just so happy for you. So I can't imagine what this must be like for your family. And of course, your wife, Nichelle, who's been such an incredible and steadfast supporter. Shout out to every one of them for their strength through this unbelievable ordeal and nightmare. Absolutely. Um, so take us there. What was it like to be finally reunited with them three decades on? It was great. The wife came up to the facility. She was out there with a couple of family members when I was released. And uh, from there, we went out to City Island and had lunch because they were out there all morning and nobody got any sleep the night before. Probably even before that, but definitely not the night before because they were excited about coming to, you know, be there to be my support system. I didn't actually feel comfortable until I actually got home, you know, and I was able to be like, wow, I'm here now, you know. But because of the circumstances surrounding how I got released, as great as the feeling is, it was bittersweet. Right, because even though you're out, justice really still hasn't been served in this case, or if it's been served, it's been served cold. Because despite the obvious, which is that you are an innocent man. And again, innocent of a crime that never even happened. You still remain sort of a prisoner in a much bigger prison, right? As a parolee. I mean, even recently you and I were going to get together and, you know, you weren't able to do it because of this, these crazy restrictions that are put on you. Can you explain the deal that you got from the Brooklyn DA? Okay. So they were trying to get my lawyers to convince me to plea guilty and that they would reduce the sentence. And I was like, absolutely not. I will die on my feet before I live on my knees and say that I am guilty of something that even they know, and it's obvious, that never happened. And what they ultimately did was filed the motion to have my sentence that was running consecutively ran concurrent. So I had 325 to life sentence. That was ran consecutively, which totaled to 75 years to life. By them putting in a motion to run it concurrent, that would effectively make my sentence to 25 to life. Right. And since you had already done 32 years, that made you eligible for parole. But we know that the parole board doesn't usually let anyone out unless they admit guilt and show remorse, which you just said you weren't about to do. So how is it possible that you're here right now? So the conditions for the sentence reduction would be that the district attorney's office would not oppose the motion and that they will actually support my release. But I had to sign a waiver 
for them not to be civilly liable in layman's turn so that the viewers can understand clearly they wanted to be relieved of any possibility of me suing once I eventually be exonerated or have this illegal sentence vacated which was ridiculous to me because first and foremost just by you putting that on the table indicates that you know I have no business being here and that you expect me to be exonerated because if you had an ironclad case and you believed that I was really guilty how would a guilty person be able to sue anybody for anything so this for me is an indication that you know eventually this man is going to be exonerated. We just don't want to compensate him for them 32 years he served. Yeah, I remember you explaining this possibility to me a few months back while you were still awaiting your hearing, and I'm still just as pissed off that your release couldn't have just been allowed by some normal legal channels rather than this deal that feels like, well, like you said, bittersweet. I was led to believe that the judge would not sentence me if I don't sign that. Ultimately, I signed it because I said at least it's not nowhere near an admission of guilt. It's just, you know, monetary compensation. And overcoming a civil bar is much easier than trying to overcome an admission of guilt for something that I didn't do, you know. And I wanted to come home with my family. So I signed it. And they did what they said they were going to do. And they supported my release. That was important because as you asked me and I pointed out to you, a parole board requires somebody to admit guilt. Well, your courage to stand firm in your innocence is impressive and inspiring. You didn't let them get you to bend the knee. And that's just badass. If there's any silver lining to these proceedings, it's that at least that aspect of it feels like justice. And I got to say, as a fellow New Yorker, I'd be happy to do right by you, as I'm sure everyone who hears this story would, to give you the compensation that you deserve, which I mean, no number would ever be enough to return to you what those three cops took from you with their lies. You know, for me, I will say that compensation does not buy back the years that people lost, right? Irrespective of whatever amount of money. I do think that it is deserving whatever is appropriate under the law, under the circumstances, because it gives a person an opportunity to live whatever golden years they have left after going through the ordeal and put their family in a position, if they're not already in a position, to live a better life, generational wealth, so to speak, to have to suffer trying to make ends meet after going through that ordeal is another matter. But personally for me, it is the fact that I am found guilty for something that never happened. How do I begin a healing process? It's nothing to do with money, Jason. Nothing to do with it. Not for me. It's getting to a place where I'm exonerated. You know, I'm made whole and acknowledge that that ordeal should have never happened. I'm on parole right now. I feel like it's prison without the cell, without the bars. I got to worry about getting pulled over. And soon as my name is ran through the computer, I'm looked at immediately as somebody who tried to kill three New York City police officers. 
and it never happened. So I'm still living that ordeal. It's traumatic. My next milestone is 60 years old. I have a parole officer I have to be in by 8 o'clock at night. I can't leave the house before 8 o'clock in the morning. You know, so it's happy as I am to be able to hug my wife without bars being in between us, be with my family, eat good food and all of that. It's still bittersweet. And uh, hopefully, Eric Gonzalez will see that this needs to be corrected and move towards that. However, whether it's with or without his support, I'll file my motion and I'll have the evidence where it's obvious that I should not have gone through the ordeal and let the system work. You know, again, it doesn't always work and we need the support. You know, we'll be here to support you in any way we can. And I know you had a change.org petition before you were released. Is that how our audience can show support? Yes, absolutely. I want to let people know where we're at. I'll modify the change.org petition to reflect my current status. However, I still encourage the supporters that sign to share and encourage their supporters on whatever social media platforms or whatever platform they have to encourage people to continue to sign and support because the ultimate goal is exoneration and that has not been met. And all the support we can gather will be highly appreciated. Well, we'll have that linked in the episode bio for folks to scroll down and sign. And Eric has done a lot of good, but this time, this is just bizarre and straight up wrong. And I'd like to encourage him to do the right thing. So please join me in signing that petition. And with that, we're now going to go to my favorite part of the show. It's called, of course, Closing Arguments. And Terrence, if it's all right with you, I'd like to use the closing that you had recorded while you were still in prison. It's a straight up appeal to... D.A. Gonzalez, and I think it still rings true today. Is that all right with you? Absolutely, because I believe that is still relevant. But in closing this interview, I would like the listeners to ask themselves, if you do not believe that I am innocent and you do not believe or foresee that eventually I will be victorious and exonerating myself why would you be preoccupied with me signing a waiver for civil liability a guilty person can't sue anybody for anything well as you guys know i'm terrence rice you just heard my story and how i got wrongfully convicted speaking directly to eric gonzalez having the opportunity to do so eric gonzalez i read an article that you did in the marshall project from September 2019. It was by Tom Robbins. In that article, you said that in 1996, when you were just starting out as a junior prosecutor, your brother was killed. You was 27 years old at the time. You talked about how your father never got over it. When the man convicted of shooting your brother came up for parole after serving 10 years, your father opposed release. After two more years, the parole board granted release. You said that when that process was over, knowing that the guy was punished and that your father didn't have to go to any more parole hearings, there was a sense of closure. I'm sorry for your loss. I lost a wife to gun violence. On March 30th, 1994, my wife was shot in the head in the East New York section of Brooklyn by a stray bullet. No one was ever arrested for her murder, so I understand that. You also said that you believe in the letter of the law. 
and that is what the law allowed in your brother's case. And your family had moved on. On October 9th, 1990, I was falsely arrested for a crime that never happened. So far, I have already served very close to three times that of which the person served that killed your brother. In my case, no one suffered a scratch. Your office is well aware of the circumstances surrounding this case. Aside from the legal issues that clearly demonstrate I am wrongfully convicted, your office, through their own investigation, is in possession of many statements from witnesses exonerating me. There is not one single shred of physical evidence against me. The rule of law that you said you believe in, it does not allow for the continued imprisonment of innocent people. In the same article, you said that people who were convicted when they were 23 years old or younger, your office will consider supporting parole for individuals who were 23 years or younger at the time of sentencing. I was 23 years old. I am sentenced to 75 years to life. You talked about promoting trust in the criminal justice system. It is time for you to practice what you preach. Eric Gonzalez, if you are unsatisfied with the evidence that demonstrates that I'm wrongfully convicted and you need something to hang your hat on, why don't you hang your hat on your own words? Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.